get at the idea of reconciliation or at one the reconciliation that is affected by the work that Jesus does on, on our behalf through his life, death, burial, resurrection. And it gets at that idea of us being made one with or reconciled with God. This, 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 this Let's be honest, talking about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Sometimes we get caught up in the world, but now the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. This is Matt Burford. I have the pleasure of bringing another great scholar on for you guys that listen in the state of Alabama. Now, listen, I don't consider myself a uh, very, um, well, very learned on this particular subject. Now, I do have my master's and I have spent time, you know, thinking about uh, the issue of atonement, but I have never really tried to swim in the deep waters of this or even get involved in the historical and philosophical and theological, uh, not only the applications of it, but also the, uh, the historical conversations about it. Uh, but I actually heard of this person with another podcast that I was listening to uh, on this particular subject, and they just went nuts about this book. It's called The Mosaic of Atonement, An Integrated Approach to Christ's Work. Uh, it's Ph.D. scholar Joshua McNall. He is Ph.D. in theology, teaches at Oklahoma University, uh, Oklahoma Wesleyan University. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. McNall. Yeah, Matt, thanks for having me. And let's get into it real quick. Uh, for those that are listening, give me a definition of what do you mean by atonement? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's one of the few uniquely English words that we use in theology. And so it was kind of coined to uh, this, to sort of get at the idea of reconciliation or at one the reconciliation that is affected by the work that Jesus does on, on our behalf through his life, death, burial, resurrection. And it gets at that idea of us being made one with or reconciled with God. What, historically speaking, how we how has the church dealt with this issue? Uh, biblically first, I mean, when I think of atonement in those ways, I think first of Paul. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm assuming Paul has a way of of cashing this out uh, in in his various letters. Um, am I right? Yeah. So Paul, for instance, uh, let's say in First Corinthians, he he returns to this idea that Christ died for us and for our sins. And so he's done something on behalf of us, Jesus has. And so Paul gets at that through a variety of metaphors, victory, substitution, uh, Christ is the new Adam. Uh, The Bible basically has a lot of different pictures or models for how atonement works, but it's all sort of pointing to this idea that Jesus has done something for us that we couldn't do for ourselves. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, as I'm reading your book and, and kind of perusing online some of the historical kind of views of this, you kind of lay them out even at the very at the introduction of your book. You have penal substitution, Christus Victor, moral influence, and re, uh, recapitulation. Could you go over those briefly? Yeah, and in, in 
Christian history, uh, Christians have have always tried to sort of understand how it is Jesus saves us. And uh, even I, you know, I, I tell the story of just laying on the bed with my my very young daughter, and, and she asked the question, you know, how is it that Jesus saves us by dying? You know, she she's a little kid, but she's very aware that dying uh, doesn't tend to fix things. We don't celebrate it when somebody dies uh, a brutal or an early death. And so throughout church history and even throughout the scriptures, uh, people are wrestling with how it is Jesus brings about salvation. And they've come up with these different images or metaphors or what I call models, models of atonement. In my book, uh, The Mosaic of Atonement, I'm using kind of that metaphor of a mosaic where the thing that makes a mosaic different from a photograph or at least a high-res photograph is that in a mosaic, you can actually see the individual pieces that make up a broader image. And in atonement, the individual pieces are these models. The, the, the model of recapitulation is kind of a big, uh, you know, $10 theological word, but it's basically just pointing to the idea that Jesus is like a new or true Adam who acts on behalf of humanity and recapitulates the human story. Uh, the model, the second model I deal with is penal substitution or vicarious judgment. And that's this idea that Jesus saves us somehow by paying the penalty that uh, humanity owed because of sin. Uh, a third model is the idea of triumph or victory. And it's in Latin, it's this uh, this phrase, Christus Victor, Christ the Victor. And so that that picture of atonement basically is using the language of triumph to talk about how Jesus has triumphed over death and evil, and in so doing, he, he saves us. And then the, the fourth image that I look at is called the moral influence model of atonement. And that basically says that the act of his, through the actions of his life and his death and his resurrection, um, Christ is compelling humanity to turn to God out of love and gratitude, rather than running away from God in fear or, or loathing. And so his, his life exerts a powerful moral influence, and I would say through the power of the Holy Spirit. So those are just four kind of pictures or way of, ways of understanding how it is Jesus saves us, and they all kind of come together in the scriptures in different ways to, to lend some color and some credibility and some understanding to how it is salvation happens. Yeah, but you, you're you also pushing against, at least I, I see that at the very beginning of your book, uh, you're, you're making an argument against kind of a, I guess, two poles um, that people usually are going to, or two extremes. You have a reductionist restraint, uh, extreme and a, I guess what you call a disconnected plurality. Now that, I mm -hmm. try not to use such complex words on my podcast, but <laughs> essentially what you're saying is, and I see this too, especially in theology, you, you, you pick one of those four you're talking about, you're going to be in that camp, and mm -hmm. you almost don't want to listen to anybody else. Or you yeah. have the other end of the spectrum, which is I'm giving up on that, but now I'm just going to believe everything. So, so yeah. you're painting a picture of what you call a mosaic, which is a, a, an approach where you're trying to look at this as almost um, penal substitution does this. Christus Victor actually does this. And you use a neat kind of uh, imagery of feet, heart, heads, and hands. So mm -hmm. the question I have to you is what do you see in 
especially in an atonement, why why do you why do you want to bring to bear this idea of two extremes and then come up with a model out of it? Yeah, that's a great question. If you look at different church traditions, so some people might be coming, say, out of a really conservative, let's say, Southern Baptist tradition. Other people might be coming from a kind of liberal Protestant tradition, right? Um, each tradition has certain tendencies in how it talks about atonement. And if you just kind of zoom out from all of those different traditions, right, no matter what denomination you grew up in or where you went to school, there are two kind of extremes that sometimes happen when we're talking about uh, the atonement. And one is to just kind of pick your favorite model of atonement and to pit it against all of the other models as if they're in a kind of uh, competition for dominance, you know. And so somebody might say, well, I really like penal substitution, the idea that Jesus pays the penalty. And I think that's the most important model of atonement. And so I'm going to kind of pit that against the other models. And I talk about that as kind of a reductionism. You're reducing the many faceted nature of Christ's work down to this one kind of like one ring to rule them all, so to speak. That's reductionistic. The other extreme is what I call relativism where you basically say, yeah, the Bible gives us lots of different images. I guess they're all important, but it's sort of like having puzzle pieces or you sort of dump the puzzle out on the table and you say, yeah, all these pieces are important, but you don't actually do the hard work of trying to figure out how they all fit together to make this coherent, beautiful image. And so relativism is just basically saying we need all these ideas of atonement, but it's not doing the work to sort of see how they actually support one another to create this this beautiful whole. And so that's the why I, that's the reason why I use the metaphor of a mosaic because um you know Paul gives us this language of the body of Christ and he's talking about the church, but he's saying that look you the the foot you know, the eye shouldn't say to the foot, I don't need you, or this part of the body shouldn't say to the other part, I don't need you, because each part of the body has a specific part to play, and he uses that to talk about the church. But my metaphor is really using that to talk about redemption, to say that there are certain ways in which we can think about these models that actually fill a particular part of the body. I've used the metaphor of feet, heart, head, and hands because they connect with other parts in a way that's actually important if we want to hold on to each one of these aspects of atonement that the Bible teaches us. And do you see that, and not to follow this rabbit tra trail, but do you see this in other areas of theology as well? I've noticed that even I was reading Michael Heiser's work, The Unseen Realm, uh, this summer. He alludes to a mosaic kind mm -hmm. of um, model for looking at all these complex issues. Uh, the reality, and I, and even when I was listening to Greg Boyd and Bill Craig's uh, the conversation with each other, they they even uh, on this issue of atonement, even they were were willing to say, "Hey, this is this to some degree is just it's almost organic." And when you're talking mm -hmm. about the atonement, it, it's it's just a very complex, mysterious and wonderful and fearful thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so why is it important for us to try to drill deep and make sense of something so mysterious that you make a note of in your, in your book is a thing to work, to be worshiped right. um, and, and not necessarily something that we have to understand fully. So why do, why do we do this as Christians? Why do we need to make, you know, a go at trying to make sense of it? 
Yeah. Yeah, I think it is important to understand that the point of the atonement, the atonement is not primarily a puzzle to be solved with our human cleverness. But really the point of the atonement is to, to direct our eyes to the great work that God has done so that we would fall down in worship and in reverence and that we'd be motivated to go out and to spread the good news of the atoning work of Christ. But I do think it is important to try to understand to the best of our abilities based on the scriptures, the sort of underlying logic of atonement doctrine. And that in so doing, it actually can help us worship. It can help us preach and spread the gospel. It can even help us when it comes to apologetics and trying to to say that, listen, Christianity may be mysterious, but that doesn't mean it's contradictory or absurd uh, you know, there is an underlying sort of logic to uh, the, the scriptures and the arguments that people like Paul and others are trying to make. And, and so I think it's important to hold those, those things in tension. It's not primarily a puzzle to be solved, but it is and it can be an act of worship to try to drill down into the underlying logic behind the statements that scripture is making on this issue. Yeah, so and that leads me to what I was going to ask you next. Uh, what what do you hope to be kind of um, the the kind of goal of this book? Like not only just for contemporary application, but what about pastoral? You know, what about for somebody like me who works in the evangelism world? Mm-hmm. Uh, I work for the Alabama Baptist State Board of Missions. I'm the state evangelist, and when it comes to apologetics, mm-hmm. um, what can I? I mean, what what do we hope? the atonement can do? What can your work do to help, I guess, further the flourishing of, of God's kingdom today in, 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 the, in the church? Yeah, you know, I think the book is written, it is academic. It's published by Zondervan Academic and, you know, has a lot of footnotes and things like that. But in terms of the style of writing, I think it's something that is accessible to pastors, especially, and, and even, you know, educated lay people, people in the church. And, and, it's trying to answer questions really that, that Christians and non-Christians have about the work of Christ. So a great example, sort of an apologetics question is, is something that's it's sometimes called the justice worry. Um, and I, I talk about it, this is sort of a little bit more academic language, but I talk about it as the problem of penal non-transference. And all I mean by that is it's a basic assumption of most people that it, it would be unjust to punish an innocent person for the crime of a guilty person and to assume that the punishment of that innocent person somehow deals with the the need for justice in this situation, right? And so that's an apologetic question that a lot of people have when they start to approach the idea of penal substitution, the idea that Jesus bears our penalty. It's this fundamental human assumption that, well, wait a minute, like, how does Jesus, you know, taking a penalty that we deserved, how does that sit with our ideas of justice and, you know, things like that? So that is an apologetic question. It's an evangelistic um, hurdle that some people have to get over. And it shows that these discussions of atonement doctrine are not really just ivory tower debates, but they really meet real people where they wrestle with the meaning of Christ's work in their, in their actual lives. Yeah. And, and, and I would say to those that are listening, pick up this book. It, it is incredibly accessible. Uh, and in fact, if, for those of you who are leaders in your church, I mean, this is, 
this is one I'm going to be suggesting to people. I have a list that I usually give pastors of when it comes to certain subjects that, that I, you know, that they're asking about, I'll hand out a list of books. This has made the book, the list. I mean, cause it's incredibly accessible in an easy read. Uh, well, I mean, it's, it flows really well, but it's a good intro into the world and discussion of atonement. Tell me something else that you're working on. Cause I'm, I'm fascinated by your work. You have actually a website It's Joshua. Is it Mc, it is McNall in it. McNall. It? Yeah. M C N A L L. Yeah. So it's J O S H U A M C N A L L.com. Uh, you also have a podcast. It's, uh, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I work at a place called Oklahoma Wesleyan University, and we're a private Christian university. I teach theology and, and Bible classes. So I host a podcast called Outpost Theology, and the, the sort of subtitle of that is that we're, we're located at the frontier of theology, culture, and the church. And I'm interested in discussions that involve theology, but they also intersect with um, just the culture at large and with the church. And so it's not a super academic podcast, even though we do talk to authors. And I, I do a little bit of blogging as well at, at that website that you mentioned, joshuamcnall.com, uh, mostly on issues of theology and culture. So it's a popular level blog. It's not a real academic one. Uh, and I'm a, a pastor. I'm on staff at a local church as the associate teaching pastor which allows me to preach regularly and kind of keep a foot in the church world uh, rather than just being, you know, active in academia. That's good. Um, it tells you something for those who are listening, that these are the kind of people that I enjoy um, to talk to. I, t I enjoy talking to all kinds of folks, but I love to see those that are practicing academics and also into the world of the church. It seems like an incredibly good balance to have. Uh, tell me something else. What, what, what do you think is on your minds now? Where, where, what is the next thing that you think that you're going to tackle in terms of work? Well, I've got a, a book coming out probably, you know, probably this in the, in 2021 with InterVarsity Press, and it's um, the title is Perhaps, and the subtitle is uh, Reclaiming the Space Between Doubt and Dogmatism. Oh, wow. And so it's a book for kind of, of theology and culture in a really polarized and bitterly divided time period. How do we reclaim this, this space between just crippling doubt and on the other extreme, this sort of angry religious dogmatism, uh, because for me, that's where most of my friends live, you know, trying to, in this middle ground between the religious zealots, the angry dogmatists, and then people like the new atheists and the, you know, secular doubters. So that's a book on theology and culture. How can we, how can the imagination, the Christian imagination, help us to carve out this space between doubt and dogmatism. And that'll be out uh, in 2021 with InterVarsity. And then right now I'm working on an atonement book for lay readers, just a very, very sort of popular level atonement book that'll take some of the ideas that I deal with in the mosaic of atonement for an academic, slightly more academic audience, and make them accessible for people who are not academic theologians at all, and really just sort of the average uh, popular level reader, try to make it accessible uh, to them. Yeah, the um, it was interesting as we were right before us to go on. I was I was just looking up C.S. Lewis and Atonement, 
Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge Lewis and Chesterton fan, so I always like to see what they have to say. It, it's, it is funny how even learned scholars who even who don't consider themselves theologians will dip their toe into atonement. And uh, when you read it, you're like, oh, okay, basically Lewis is like, I have no clue. Uh, I'm going to worship it, um, you know, and then he kind of leaves. But then you, you read somebody else uh, on Lewis's works on atonement and it gets heated quick. Like yeah. this guy had no no you know right to even talk about this issue here are his issues uh but you in this book do a really good job of making of, of giving out the four different views historically that's been going on and then trying to work them out as if each and every one of them work for each other uh it's that kind of unity in theology that i think what makes not only your book accessible but helps the church navigate uh these issues and then move them towards not only uh, worship, but worship in unity. Like, you know, mm. these things can work out and these things are useful for us to see it in different ways. And we don't have to be, you know, dogmatic on one and then throw out the other. Uh, that while we're on this side of heaven, you know, it's it's okay if we all can be brothers and talk about these issues and sisters and not have to, you know, take a stand on one and jettison the other. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for this work. And w when it comes to your, your next book, uh, I would love to have you on again. We, we had Gary Habermas on not too long ago on Christian Doubt, and I got a lot of emails about that one. So I think you're really putting your finger on the pulse of where the church is. So thank God for what you're doing. Thank God for your work, and uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Matt.